This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk to storytellers on this show. And that's all we do. There's very little opinion on this show. There's no arguing. There's no debates. And there are very few callers. Because unless you're here to tell a story, we're not interested. And one of the best storytellers in America is about to join us now. Brad Meltzer is a number one New York Times bestselling author of adult thrillers. He's had two nonfiction gift books, Heroes for My Son and Heroes for My Daughter. And those were New York Times bestsellers as well. He has won the prestigious Eisner Award for his comic book work. There's nothing this guy hasn't done. And Meltzer is about to hit one million books sold in his picture book biography series, Ordinary People Change the World. And other books in this series that he has covered include Jim Henson, Martin Luther King Jr., Helen Keller, Lucille Ball, Jackie Robinson, Albert Einstein, Rosa Parks, Amelia Earhart, and Abraham Lincoln. We're talking to him today because the release of his ninth and tenth books in this series, I Am George Washington and I Am Jane Goodall, uh, are out in bookstores and on Amazon today. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, Brad, I love, you know, we love storytelling. And we had on David McCulloch, and he was talking about history. And he said, you know, when I'm writing history, the thing I try and do is let particularly young people know that when George Washington was walking around this country and on this earth, he didn't know he was going to be this extraordinary man and do these exceptional things, and he didn't know that he was going to be a part of history. He was living it. Talk about why you use the words ordinary people change the world. You know, because I I started this series because I was tired of my own kids looking at reality TV show stars and big mouth athletes and thinking that that's a hero. I tell my kids all the time that's being famous, and being famous is very different than being a hero. So we started uh, two years ago with I'm Amelia Earhart and I'm Abraham Lincoln, and the goal was to show you them not just when they're famous, but when they're kids. Amelia Earhart, when she was seven years old, built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. Abraham Lincoln used to love animals, and when he saw a group of boys torturing some turtles, he stood up to the bullies and took them on. And when you do that, my kids go, wait, they're just like me, Dad. And the same thing as you just said with George Washington. One of the things, and it was, you know, obviously we've been waiting to do George Washington since the start, but what I wanted to do is, especially with the political world as it is today, my kids see politicians on TV every day. What I want them to see are leaders. And politicians, being a politician is not the same as being a leader. I want my sons to know what a leader is. I want my daughter to know what a leader is. And George Washington is a leader because he understands that leadership isn't about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. Yeah, those very different things, Brad, very different things. And I also love that you stress the fact that in the end, you know, ordinary people, all of us have the capacity, Brad, to do this. I think what we don't have enough of in our culture are examples. And how often in life will we follow because we knew a story or we heard a story. One of the amazing uh, side effects of the book, The Blind Side, Sean and Leanne Tui, who were the subjects of that book and that movie, were on a show with me talking about the thing that most moved them. Over 10,000 people said they heard and saw the story and they said, you know what? We can adopt too. But for that story, 10,000 people might not have replicated, and she thinks there were many more. Both of them thought many more people did that. These stories can be a source of inspiration, I guess, is what I'm saying, and imitation too, Brad. 
And that's exactly, you know, and the way you start that process is you got to show kids especially that these heroes are not untouchable. They're not up on pedestals because if they see them as perfect, then we can't do it. We can't, we can't be what they are. But we stay in, I am George Washington as a perfect example. When I looked into his life, I saw George Washington wasn't some uh, amazing athlete or spectacular student. He liked doing what normal kids did. He liked swimming. He liked fishing. He was a good dancer of all things. He loved to dance. And he was not so great. He was, you know, a, a good math student, but not so great at spelling. He was a terrible speller. Now, my daughter's a dancer, loves to dance. My sons and my daughter, all of them are bad spellers in my family. And now they're like, oh, Dad, he's like us. And these aren't the stories of famous people. Now this is a story of what we're all capable of in our very best days. And once you do that, now you can, have, you can see kids doing it. And, and it's amazing, you know, on this past Halloween, one of my favorite letters we got with all the kids that were dressed up like Amelia Earhart and Abraham Lincoln sending us letters. One of them said, Dear Brad, thanks to your book, instead of going as a princess this year, my daughter went as Amelia Earhart, thanks to what reading I am Amelia Earhart. And my gosh, that's just like what you said about the blind side. You have these repercussions you could never anticipate. Yeah, and I think that is the power of narrative storytelling. And I also think when people are doing storytelling right, it's these connective points, this connective tissue that makes somebody think that person on the screen ain't much different than me. And I think that's what you're trying to do here. And that, yeah, what we're trying to do is make it accessible. You know, one of the things that, that we tell in the book is even, even in the moments where they fail, you know, George Washington, his first election to the Virginia legislature, he lost. Yep. He didn't win, he lost. And then he came back and said, I'm going to do better next time. And to me, you know, his, his greatest, most heroic act comes after the Revolutionary War. Not because he's president, that's just a title you give someone. But when we win the war, he could be the king of America. He was so beloved, they could have made him the king of America. And instead, King George says, well, what's George Washington going to do after the war? And someone says to him, well, he's going to go back to his farm. And they say, if he does that, King George says, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. And that's exactly what George Washington does, and he does it again after a second term. He, his greatest, most heroic act is that he doesn't put himself first. He puts his faith in us as a country. He puts his faith in us as a people, that we're going to find our own way together. And boy, do I want my kids to hear that. You bet. And I think that is the most important part of Washington's story. And he did that through the war, too. I was, Newt Gingrich has spent a lot of time on, on this biography uh, during the war. And the amount of time, forget the heroism fighting, the amount of time he simply stayed away from his own home, Brad, is just remarkable. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Brad Meltzer. He's got this extraordinary, and I don't want to call it a child's book series. I want to say it's a perfect book and perfect series of books for adults to share with their kids of all ages and when we come back i am jane goodall i am george washington and this is lee habib and this is our american stories more with brad melter after these messages
This is Our American Stories, and we're being joined by Brad Meltzer, who has done so much with his writing gifts. New York Times bestsellers, adult thrillers, nonfiction, TV, the History Channel shows. But we have him on to talk about a book series, and that book series is Ordinary People Change the World. And it's for kids, and it's history, but it's history that connects to kids' lives. And in the end, gives them a source of inspiration for perhaps doing something more with their lives than they would have ever thought because other people did remarkable things with ordinary gifts. And joining us back on the airwaves, Brad, thank you so much again. No, thank you. You bet. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the George Washington book. As you were doing the research, and obviously you've got to look when you're doing a children's book for, I would assume, four or five entry points. That's my guess. Is you're, you're, some of this has to do with the research. And as you're doing the research, what are the few things you stumble upon that say, these are the points, these are the things I can write around and bring the kids into this particular world? Yeah, I mean, listen, I look for them, and, you know, it's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. Yep. You just do. You know, you get these things, and you're like, you know, I find out George Washington's a dancer, and then he loved to dance, and I'm like, you know what, there's just something awesome about that. There's just something human about that. And, and one of my favorite things we found is, you know, I always thought George Washington just grew up wealthy. I've been to Mount Vernon. It's gorgeous. It's acres and acres of, you know, land. And I thought, oh, he's, you know, he's wealthy. So that, and on that level, I, you know, I come from a very you know, normal working-class family. I could never really relate to him. And then I find out that when his dad died, they were so poor George Washington had to drop out of school. He didn't even go to high school or college. And and what I love is when he finally becomes a surveyor for the Fairfaxes, the Fairfaxes is a very wealthy family that hires him. And suddenly now he gets to go to some fancy dinners. He learns what fork to eat with and what fine china is. But what's amazing is rather than just thinking, well, he's made it and forget about where he came from, George Washington still goes home and eats with a stick at a hand, you know, homemade fire. He yep. never, ever forgets who he is or where he came from. And, boy, do I want my kids to learn that lesson. I can tell my kids all, all the day long, never forget where you come from. But to be able to share a story, right, that's why the Bible is so powerful. It's not made up of rules. Yep. It's made up of stories, because stories are what we don't forget. And those stories have values to them. And that's what this series does, is it really has a value system. And so on the back of every book, there's the value. So on the back of I Am Abraham Lincoln, it says, I will speak my mind and speak for others. On the back of I'm Amelia Earhart, it says, I will know no bounds. On the back of Albert Einstein, I am Albert Einstein, it says, I will always be curious. And, and on the back of George Washington is that moral, too. It says, I have the courage to do what no one's done before. And by the way, the word courage is interesting because, you know, I was just studying the word just a little bit. I'm doing a speech on the word. And Aristotle had always said it was the most important of the virtues because it informed and allowed for all the others. And if, if, if Washington had anything in large supply, it was courage. And, you know, when you're telling your story in the book, you, you, there's this trenchant part where you say, when I turned 15, my mother told me I needed to get a job. Wow, that's a book right there. Since I was good at math and precision, I became a surveyor. And that is someone who explores large areas of land to find their boundaries. And then what you do so well here, Brad, is you slow down and you take the kids and the adults, frankly, on this little exploration of what a surveyor was back then. Because let me tell you, it took courage 
to be a really good surveyor. And Lewis and Clark were sort of national surveyors in a strange sense. This guy was a sort of an, he was a real explorer, wasn't he, Brad? Yeah, and that was the whole point, right? And it, and it fit perfectly with this other story I found that when he was young, growing up at Mount Vernon, where he first lived, he was scared about going into the woods and going into the forest. That looked scary to him. And I realized right there, there was the heart of George Washington, that it's scary to be the first. That's yep. what a surveyor is, right? It's the first person who goes on a path and treads to a new area. But isn't that exactly, metaphorically, who he is? And so, of course, we pulled through the entire book, that moment of, like, just being first is going to be scary. We don't make him this, you know, he ran incredibly into the danger and never feared a thing. Right. That's ridiculous. No one's like that. He was terrified, but he kept going. And yeah. that's what we all need to do. We all know we're fighting that scary battle, but you got to keep going and keep going. Yeah, and that is the definition of courage. I mean, it, you don't exhibit courage. If there's no fear, then there's no courage. Um, that's just crazy. That exactly that's just right. crazy. Let's talk about Jane Goodall. Um, a moment or two as you're doing the research on her life that really said this is what will connect to the kids. This data point or this story about Jane Goodall will really do it. Talk about her life. Um, you know, what I, I, I started I Am Jane Goodall for a very selfish reason, which was for my daughter. I wanted my daughter to have a female scientist, someone who can study math and science and be a woman. I want more of those in this world. And, I, you know, I knew she liked animals. My daughter loves our dog. So I was like, this is going to be perfect. What I didn't realize is what an amazing story it truly is. And Jane Goodall, when she was growing up, there was a certain way that things were done. There was a certain way that you studied animals. There was a certain way that girls were supposed to act. There was a certain way that scientists were supposed to, when it came to animals, look at things. And, you know, animals weren't supposed to be given names. They were given numbers. And, they, you know, because they were stupid creatures, and no, you know, they had yep. no personalities. Mm -hmm. And then Jane Goodall comes and sees all these certain ways that things are supposed to be done. And rather than listening to the rules, she listens to her gut. And she goes out into the jungles of Tanzania and sees that these, these chimpanzees, these so-called dumb animals, are holding hands. They're making tools and using them. They're hugging and she realizes they have personalities, they have feelings, they have emotions, just like your dog does. We all know that now, but not them. And Jane Goodall was the one who figured it out. And boy, did she change how women were supposed to be in the workplace, how they were supposed to be as scientists. And, and those, ways, those certain ways that people were supposed to act, Jane Goodall said, well, yeah, here's a brand new way that we, we're going to act instead. Well, you have in the book this sequence, I wanted a job where I could learn more about animals. But back then, if you were a girl... People didn't think you could become a scientist. They expected girls to become nurses, secretaries, or teachers. I wanted to go to Africa. That is such a definitive statement from a young girl. How did she get this into her mind? And then how did she get the courage to go ahead and do it, Brad? Uh, you know, I still ask myself that question. Um, you know, the amazing part is when we were doing I Am George Washington, I couldn't ask George Washington, and if I mess up the book, he, he's not going to say anything to me. Right. But Jane Goodall is still alive. And Jane Goodall, if I mess it up, she can come to my house with chimpanzees. You know? <laughs> and down. so when we, were work, when we were working on the book, we sent it to Jane Goodall and you know, went through her staff and it went through all these people. And the amazing part was you know, we asked all these questions, and, and, and what, the only thing that Jane Goodall actually said about the book, which she loved, she gave us a blurb for the front, that, for the front of the book that says, I so love this little book. But she said, we had this part where um, when she was little, she used to take her dog and dress it up um, so in pajamas. 
And she said, I, I one, her one request for a change was, can you take the pajamas off the dog? And I said, you know, did that not happen? Did we get that wrong? I don't understand. She said, no, no, you got it right. That's exactly what I used to do. But if you put the dog in pajamas, then kids across the country are going to start dressing up their dogs in clothes, and it's going to be bad for the animals. And even today, Jane Goodall was perfectly on message looking out for the safety of animals. And I just love, you know, only someone like that could be the person who says, I want to go to Africa because I need to see these animals. And I love the back. And, you know, again, in the back of George Washington, the line, because we're looking at the various virtues that each of these uh, folks that you cover uh, exhibit and inhabit. I have the courage to do what no one else has done before. I am George Washington, and I am Jane Goodall. You say, I see so much that we all have in common, and it's Jane holding the hand or clutching a hand with the little chimpanzee. you got about a minute, Brad. Close it out for the folks listening about these two books and why they should get them. Yeah, well, you know what I'd say is simply this, is uh, I realize I'm not alone in my feelings to want to give kids real heroes. And the goal has never been about I am Jane Goodall or I am George Washington or I am Abraham Lincoln. The goal is to help you build a library of real American heroes for your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews. And it's why I love how many people have come to me and said, I bought a whole set of these for my kids' school, for my grandkids' school. I bought them for a homeless shelter, for wherever they're buying them for. And that is just one of those things that makes me proud to be American, that there are people who have these same values and want to give kids real well, heroes. Well, one book I know you won't be doing is I Am Kim Kardashian. This I know, Brad. I, I will guarantee you that. <laughs> well, good. And just keep it up. We are looking forward to more. And as always, we love being joined by you, Brad. Love the things you care about and the things that you're passionate about. Our audience is passionate about the same things. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, brother. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Brad Meltzer, Ordinary People Change the World. Two books out now. I am Jane Goodall. I am George Washington. And I am Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment, with whom we like to call our marriage ambassador, our marriage coach, Deb Olniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages compared to 28% with traditional counselors. And what we're going to be doing here on Our American Stories is we're not going to bring you like PhD experts with opinions. We want to find practitioners and experts in their field who are making a difference on the ground. And Deb and her group are doing just that. Every week, Deb will join us for story storytelling about marriage and take calls about marriage. If you have any questions about your marriage, need advice for a friend going through marriage trouble, 
or have a nugget of wisdom on the subject, 877-655-6755 is our number. And this week, Deb brings us an interview with storyteller Leslie Leyland Fields, an author of 10 books about her very own marriage story. I grew up in New Hampshire, and uh, I went to college uh, in Ohio, and I met this wild and crazy Alaskan fisherman there in college, and we uh, fell in love, and we actually got married while we were still in school, and uh, then after we graduated, um, we went back to Alaska, and um, as I said, he's a fisherman, he's a commercial fisherman, so marrying uh, marrying my husband meant that I also married um, fishing, you know, I married fish, I married salmon and I married Alaska the whole state of Alaska because he is he's born and bred uh, in Alaska and it just um, he you know he he just would never want to leave and so uh, we did we moved to Alaska and I have been married now and I've lived in Alaska for 38 years which I can't oh, really believe I can't believe it either you look too young to be married 38 years I know I feel the same way <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's it's lovely that, that you've been up there. I mean, we all can romanticize Alaska, but Alaska isn't always the most friendly environment. I, I've got to believe that's got to be tough on a marriage sometimes. You know, it, the, the, we have been through just some, oh, through a lot, a lot of things um, because of the environment, because of the culture. And the culture, you have to understand, the culture of commercial fishing is um, and you have to understand the place. It, this we live on an island, off of an island, so it's very remote. It's Bush, Alaska, and we we spent several years um, out there in the winter time building our own house and with with you know just just basically our backs and our arms and and we lived for two winters, just the two of us on an island literally 10 miles away from any other human being and with no contact with the outside world. So um, it, it's, you know, we've been through a lot of trials and building a house together and living in remote in remote bush Alaska. And then commercial fishing seasons have been, have really been um, a challenge for our marriage and, and in a lot of ways, you know, we start off with the, this idea that we were going to, you know, work together and share all of our work. And so I went out in the fishing boats and the skiffs with, uh, with my husband and we worked side by side. And, you know, that lasted about one season <laughs> because we discovered, here's what happens. Here's what happened. And I think this might sound familiar to people with any sort of agricultural background, farming background. You know, once we stepped in the skiff, we were no longer husband and wife. We were now skipper and crew. So there was a hierarchy, and and that's how that's how you know sort of maritime culture. It's very hierarchical, right? There's one boss, and everyone else is a deckhand or a crew hand, and and just follows orders. And no, there's no questioning of of decision making. It's just simply you do it and you do it now, just instant obedience. And oh, that that was a real stressor um, in our marriage, and that really. Um, that's kind of been the pattern that in that culture and in that environment, we sort of reverted to this, you know, uh, boss and crew sort of relationship. And 
a few years into this, you know, I was really feeling the pain and knowing this is not, you know, we can't sustain a marriage uh, with this kind of relationship. So the challenge has been in that culture and in our marriage for me to find a way to be heard and for him to find a way to listen. Do you feel that it took multiple years and multiple seasons, I mean, in this harsh environment, to be able to have that result? Oh, it's, Deb, um, it's, you know, I'm 38 years into it and we're still working on it, you know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't, you never reach a place, okay, done, done, moving on to the next thing. Tell us about the time where you're almost ready to walk away. Yeah, well, in fact, I did, um, and what that meant for me living on a remote island with no transportation, no access, no ability to escape, really. Um, mm. That island at low tide was attached to another island, and so I reached a point where I just couldn't I couldn't go on, and um, I literally packed up a backpack of food. I grabbed a gun because there's lots of bears around, and I walked off the island down to a cabin, um, a shack, um, down um, five miles away, down the beach. The only way I could get there was to walk. And I stayed there for two or three days just really wrestling, wrestling with God and wrestling with what do I do next and how can we fix, how can this marriage be fixed? And, and Deb, I, I was sure that there was no way to fix this. I was sure that this was the end. And, I was I was exhausted and ready to give up on the marriage, but um, but you know I I eventually had to return. I I couldn't stay there forever. I had to return, <laughs> and when I came back, I found my husband so brokenhearted and so distressed and so grieving my absence and my loss that we were able to come back together and say, okay, all right, we're not done. Let's pick up. Let's let's start again and, and let's try to hear each other and let's see what we can change and what we can do to, to, to make this marriage work. Yeah. Do you think it was communication that was the biggest point of need? Um, I think it was. It's, you know, everything is, it, that seems, it feels a little bit too simple to say that. I think mm-hmm. there's a, um, there's a whole set of expectations that, you know, two people come to a marriage and they each have a set of expectations about what that will mean. And, um, you know, for my husband, he had a, a very traditional view that was part of what he had grown up with, where the husband was the head of the home, the head of the family, and made all the decisions. And and the wife simply um, just agreed and obeyed and followed along behind you know, that was the old model that, that you know, held for generations and for, and for centuries. And I, I think now we recognize that's not, that, that's not a good model. It doesn't work for either side. And, uh, and my husband really did want a partner, and he really did respect me. But he just didn't, you know, we had to figure out a way to get rid of the hierarchy and let's, and, and let's just sit down together and figure this out together. Let, let me, as the wife, let me help take some of that burden of that responsibility that you feel, you know, being the one making all the decisions. Let's do this together. 
And, and, you know, and that's what's happened over the years. It's become such a mutuality that it, it's, it's really gorgeous. And I find myself, um, even though I'm very independent, but I find myself, whenever I'm making any decision at all, I, I go to my husband, not because I have to, because I want to. I want to hear what he thinks. I want his opinion. I want him to help me decide what to do. And he does the same thing. And in the old days, never. He would just, you know, make a decision. Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and he has come to the place where he so values my thinking and my, and, uh, my opinion that um, he doesn't make a, a, a single decision without me either. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we return, more with Deb Wolniak after this. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And by the way, you're listening to The Doors and Jim Morrison. And every time I think about Jim Morrison, Jesse, I always think of Val Kilmer's crazy great performance. I don't think he's ever done anything since, frankly, that holds a candle to it. But it may be one of the great pieces of acting you could ever see. And you just heard a great story. Deb interviewing a woman who, well, was at wit's end, thought the marriage was over. You heard her words. There's no way to fix it, she said. And she was exhausted and ready to give up. And there were struggles internally, I think, over power and over who is in charge. And with us is Deb Wolniak, who is our Our American Stories marriage coach. And, Deb, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This is an exciting topic. Some people are going to be going... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it is. And I have always thought this is a big one. I mean, I, you know, we always say the word communication, but you can communicate all day long. But if, if one person wants to be in control and the other one wants to be in control, what do you do about that, Deb? Yeah. Yeah. You got two people trying to drive the ship. And what's interesting is men and women are driving toward two different things. Basically, it comes down to a very key thing that we can find in Dr. Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect which is interesting because what she desires the most is love. And what he desires the most is respect. And that's one of the key books that we tell people, if they're struggling with power struggles in their marriage, check that book out. It can start answering some of those questions. Give us the name of that book again, Deb, and tell us yes. a little bit more about it. What, what did you learn from that book? But give the well, title real slow to folks. Absolutely. It's called Love and Respect. It's by Dr. Emerson Egrich. Actually, Egrich's, sorry. And he does a very good analysis along with his wife. They came out with this book in 2004, and they did a great job on talking about some of the different cycles of conflict, um, resolving those conflicts, some of those things in, in that energize the cycle of conflict and ways to, di- to start to diffuse it. But the core piece is to look at the goal of how the other person is wired. So many times women just want to say, give me the wheel, let's run. And and they forget about the fact to respect their husbands, even in the conversation. Just even listen a little more can show respect. And from the man's point of view, he's like, listen, this is this is all I'm looking for. Just let's deal with this. But 
But he, but he, you know, she's just looking for that moment of just some love. You know, hey, I get all the logistics, but can you just show me some love here? Show that you hear me as well. And when they start singing the same song, even though they're aiming at love and respect, it actually sings a chord. It actually gets the relationship to start working together a little more because you're looking out for the other person's interest in that area. That can be a great fuel to help make sure that relationship is functional and moving in the right direction. And if there's a lacking in that area, you're going to feel it. If one side is pulling or the other side is pulling too hard and it's, it's all about me, which that's not how a relationship is going to work, it's going to fall, the wheels are going to come off the car. So if you just look at those two words, love and respect, you're going to start seeing some progress. You're on to something. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Deb Wolniak, and Deb is our marriage coach here in Our American Stories. She's also the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And by the way, folks, and it's such an important statistic, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages compared to just 28% with traditional counselors. And, and Deb, you know, as we get to the, the, the struggle sometimes between love and respect and sometimes between who's running this house, you know, sometimes I think I always think of the old honeymooners episode where Ralph Cramden goes in and goes, I'm king of this household. And he wants to lay down the law because he's sick and tired of his woman making decisions. And damn it, she's the woman. He's the man. And this is how it's going to be. And, and a lot of this, I think, has to do with expectations. Talk about the expectations and also what you know, the families you came from and how power was divided. Talk about expectations. And, and do couples really talk this through as they're in love and about to get married? And is that part of the problem, that they never even have these discussions as they're courting oh. one another? Well, you're hitting on a bunch of things here. So the first one is a generational piece. You know, we can look at our grandparents and and even some of us who are older, our parents, and look at that classic traditional style, the leave it to beaver type family. The man is the breadwinner. The woman is at home managing her household. Dinner's ready at five. The family sits down. We just don't have that kind of culture today. Now, not not everybody's in that mode. There are some that still maintain those traditional values, and they benefit greatly from that. To have a dinner together is almost a luxury. And sometimes when we get to our Thanksgiving dinners, we go, wow, this is how it feels to cook in the kitchen and have a nice dinner. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yep. but at the same time, you know, as we look to today's family, it is interesting as people approach marriage, and let's face it, a lot of us are living together and trying out marriage before we're actually getting into it. That's a separate issue and can cause some further challenges, which there are statistics for. We can do that on a different show. But let's just talk about those that say, hey, I'm ready to go to the altar, make the commitment with you, let's go do this, plan this wedding, and get it done. Now, everybody can get married, but the preparation that you make before you walk down the aisle is absolutely key. And I'm going to give you a statistic. If you go through a program called Prepare and Enrich, which is our core mentoring program here, you will increase your chance of staying together for life by 70%. Can you imagine that? That's scary good. That's scary good. Like, you would want to look at the person down at the end of the aisle and go, I am committing to you, and I know why I'm committing to you, and I absolutely love you, despite your faults. Despite our challenges, but we're aware of what those challenges are. And I'm ready to go after life with but, you as my teammate. But, 
But, Deb, is it also scary bad in the sense that a lot of people might not want to go through that mentoring early because they don't want to know the truth? They just want to stay with the intoxication of love and not hear outsiders' opinions on maybe ways to preserve that marriage while you're in this midst of romance and just pure, sheer, unbridled optimism? Oh, sure. And some of that's really exciting, isn't it? I mean, that's like euphoria. But we all know that that honeymoon stage is short-lived. If you have a honeymoon stage that can last, you know, that first five years, you're doing awesome. I'm going to tell you something. My own experience, I thought I was in the honeymoon stage. And when my husband and I got to about year five or six, we looked back and we kind of went, oh, my gosh, you know what? Our honeymoon kind of ended at the honeymoon stage (laughs) when it was over. (laughs) We had a tough time. It was tough. And and so, Deb, in, in in the power struggles that we're talking about, how, do, how does this ultimately, if, 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 if the husband had the expectation that he was going to be the king of the house, and by the way, I, I, my dad and a, and a couple of his older friends often look at me and, and say, I don't know how you guys do it. Our generation, I was the head of the house, and now how do you guys do it? Who's the head? You know, every, How can you have two people running a house? My dad always said, how can you have two people running a house? Well, Dad, I mean, we're managing it at my household. I think we're co-leaders of the house, and my yes. wife handles some responsibilities. I handle others, but we negotiate everything, and we are we try to have an equal distribution of responsibilities. That doesn't work for some people, though, right, Deb? No, it, it doesn't. Now, you picked up on something really, really important, um, communicating what the, the things of the household that need to be done, communicating what priorities are related to finances and who's the breadwinner or how are you both bringing home the check, et cetera. Those all have to be talked about. And some people say, oh, well, we already know how we're doing that because we've been together for whatever. But believe me, after, you know, you get married, things change. The pressure's on a little bit more. And when those crisis things happen, you have to have a game plan. Now, I'm going to tell you what's what's interesting about this topic is in today's age, we have more and more breadwinner moms. And I have a statistic for you of 40% of all households with children under the age of 18, including mothers who are either the sole or primary source of income for their family, according to new Pew Research Center analysts of data from the U.S. Census Bureau, the share was just 11% in 1960. But breadwinner moms are made up of, of really of two very different groups. Of the 5.1 million breadwinner moms today, 37% are married mothers who have a higher income than their husbands. That's interesting. And yep. 8.6 million, which is about 63%, are single moms. So as we've seen women increase in the workplace and really bringing home some of that financial uh, that paycheck to help better their families or where their stage is at, and just to survive, women are having more of an input into their relationships, their marriage, and some of those decisions that are made. How the couple handles it will be up to them. I do believe that couples are making those decisions together more often today. And one of the best ways that I've seen married couples handle some of those things is they both have a voice. Some of those pieces that um, people are experiencing on the pressure from either the man's side or the woman's side, also depends on their family of origin and how conflict was handled. So if there's a situation situation that arises that causes that conflict, you kind of have to go back and go, okay, wait, time out, time out. What are we feeling here? What are we discussing? What's the issue? 
it may be that one of them feels angst because normally problems are handled a certain way. And if that's the case, talk it out. Say, oh, I, I know why I feel like this. It's because my mom actually made the decision on this issue all the time at home. I'm not getting this in my family. So let's talk about that. Yep, and this is you know, this is great subject matter, Devin. You know, each week, each week here on Our American Stories in the Marriage on the Mind segment, we delve into one topic. In the next couple of weeks, we'll start opening up the lines to you. Uh, we want to first let you get to know us here on Our American Stories. Our marriage coach forever till death do us part. Deb <laughs> Wolniak, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great night. You too. This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about things that work. Everywhere else you turn, you're going to hear about what's not working and why. And we like to give the other side of the story, which is that, well, some things that you're being told don't work. Well, sometimes they don't work, but sometimes they do. One of those things that's been under the crossfire, one of those areas, is the criminal justice system. And there's no question that there are some problems, but there are some problems in everything, in our education system, in corporate America, in the private sector, in the public sector. It's called life. But the question is, when does it work? And what are people doing to make it work? And we love talking about solutions to problems and not just complaining uh, because, well, you can turn the channel and get that anywhere. And joining us is Judge Bobby Francis, who runs the Dallas, Texas Reentry Court Program He works with convicted criminals who volunteer for extra counseling, extra supervision to help them adapt to life outside of prison, an area we love to delve into. It's important. And also joining us is Lynette Niaves, and we're going to talk about her story. But first, we want to get Judge's story. Judge Bobby Francis, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. It's my my privilege to be here. How y'all doing today? We're doing great. And uh, Judge... Just give us a little backdrop, the audience. You've been on before. You're going to be on again. But for the folks who didn't hear you the last time, tell us about how you got where you got. Uh, Because I think it's important to hear your voice and your story before we end up getting to Lynette's. Sure. I I grew up uh, as a little kid. I lived in Pflugerville, Texas. Uh, We moved to Dallas, Uh, did the rest of my growing up there. I went to the University of Texas for undergrad, and I'd like to go ahead and give them a plug now. That was one heck of a game Sunday night. I'm really proud of them. Uh, I went to South Texas for law school, and then when I got out of law school, I came back to Dallas, and I joined the DA's office. Um, I was a prosecutor for five years, and then I uh, was a defense attorney for six years, and I've been a judge now for, holy cow, 20 years. Um, Time flies, doesn't it? Um, I started doing treatment court back in about year 2000, 
And since 2009, uh, I've been a full-time treatment court judge. I think I'm the only uh, actual judge who does a full-time treatment court, uh, certainly in Texas, but maybe in the whole country. There's certain there's magistrate judges or people who are hired by, by district judges to do it, but I think I'm the only uh, district judge who does this full-time. i got to say it's really enjoyable. It sounds like it, and it sounds like you're bringing all of your talents to the fray and all of your experience as well to solve a problem. So tell me, what is this treatment court? What does it entail? What's its goal? What's its mission? And how are you doing? How are you doing for the people of Texas? And more importantly, how are you doing for the, the prisoners? They've got to reenter society. And one of the biggest things that's got to really burn people in the judicial system is the recidivism rates and the, the, the height and the high percentage of folks who end up coming right back into the system. That's not a good thing. Talk about that, sure. if you could. Sure. What, well, what happens is the people that I deal with have been placed on probation for their offense by one of my colleagues. And then as a condition of their probation, they have to go to six to nine months of inpatient treatment inside a prison unit. So I think it's probably the best treatment available to anybody in the country uh, because they're locked in. They have to be there. They have to participate. You know, you see a lot of these... uh, treatment programs that are 30 to 45 days where people can walk away and uh, they're not there long enough that they stay the whole time. And if they don't stay the whole time, that walking away didn't do anybody any good. So my folks have to stay there. And then when they get out of that lockdown inpatient treatment, they come to me for a year and they are in my program for a year with three months follow-up at the end. So a total of 15 months. And what my job is, is to make sure that they can make the transition from being sober in a locked-up environment to being sober and functioning in the world in which they're going to have to spend the rest of their life if we don't lock them up. And uh, it's a challenge, I'll say that. There's no question it's a challenge. But it's, it's incredibly rewarding when we get to graduation, we have people successfully graduate, and you can tell that they have made a decision in their life to change. And... The, the reality is they have to make that decision. No matter how good the treatment is, no matter how good the, the staff is, no matter how good a job I do, they've got to make a commitment to themselves that they want a different life. And once they do that, it's my job to ensure that they get every opportunity to do that while still being sure that I'm protecting the public and ensuring public safety. You bet. And I think that's a big concern for many people is we've got to make sure as we do things that the public safety, which is of paramount importance, is protected. But talk about recidivism rates. Talk about money, too, because these are important things. As a result of this program, you've saved the people of Texas a lot of money, and you've kept a lot of people from returning to that place they would have otherwise attended but for the program, Judge, which has got to make you really feel good that you're saving lives and saving money. And those two things are very important. Oh, they're, they're incredibly important. And the, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice did a study last year uh, covering 2015. And of all the different state-sponsored programs, my 4C court was the most successful in the state over about a three- to five-year period where they were able to get data from everything else. So the, the success rate is, is phenomenally high. Uh, I, I measure things by, based on graduation because that's what I keep track of. And about 83 to 85 percent of the folks that come through our program graduate. Um, 
they, they continue on after that. Uh, they avoid recidivism. Uh, like you say, it's good for them. It's good for the economy. It's a less expensive way than locking people up. But more important, what I think the most important aspect is, and what I see future studies focusing on, is that when these folks, like Miss Niaves, who's coming up in a little bit, when these folks are home, whether it's a mom, a dad, uh, they are there giving their parent, their children guidance as parents on how to do things the right way instead of teaching them the wrong way or being absent and not teaching them at all. So I think we're going to find over the next 15, 20, 25, 50 years that there's a generational effect that the people who do well have much better odds of their kids doing well. And that's a big, big number we don't know yet, but it's going to get uncovered. And we're talking to Judge Bobby Francis, who runs the Dallas, Texas Reentry Court Program, the Four C's, Community Corrections Continuum of Care. And now, up next, Lynette Niaves. And we're going to hear her story, how she came into contact with Judge Francis, and the impact this program had on her life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we just heard from Judge Bobby Francis and about the remarkable work he and his team are doing, and it takes a team to do this, I'm sure, and the work they're doing in Texas in a 4C program, working with convicted criminals, and changing recidivism rates, and changing lives, because that's the only way to change a recidivism rate, is to change a life, to change a heart, and to get to know these folks and the people uh, that we think we can just lock up, but sooner or later, the folks have to come out. And we love telling stories because uh, the prison system affects so many American families. And we're there. Wherever, wherever there are stories like this, we're there. And joining us now to talk about this program is one of the participants. And Lynette Niaves joins us now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with the public, Lynette. Thanks. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Let's let's get to your the early part of your life first. Uh, talk about how you grew up. We love talking to people about their parents, their family situation, because so often this does di- dictate outcomes in our country. Talk about where you were born, your parents, and your your childhood a bit, if you could. Okay, um, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I was raised there. Well, not I was there for about 10 months, and when I was 10 months old, my mom moved us to um, Richmond, California, and we were there for about until um, I was 17. Um, my mom and my dad separated when I was five years old, and um, I, I pretty much was raised in by my mother and my grandmother. And, and your, so your uh, father, your father was not in the picture per se, Lynette. No, he wasn't. Not and, at all. And then how did you? So you 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 raised by your mom and your grandmother, and this is the situation for many many kids in this country. How did you get 
in, involved in, let's just say, activity that could ultimately lead to prison life. What were some of those early choices you made that seemed like not terrible choices at the time? Well, um, I started drinking at an early age, and I started smoking weed when I was 13, and um, just running around with the wrong crowd and not really into school. I dropped out when I was in ninth grade. I would always cut class a lot, and my mom was working and away a lot, so I had, like, too much freedom on my hands and not enough supervision at home is my thing. And then there, there were, you know, lapses of addiction, relapses. You were in and out of the prison system. Talk a little about that part of your, your life, because at that point it seems like things get really, really unstructured for you. Yeah, well, um, I experimented with drugs ever since I was 13, but I didn't start doing heavy drugs until I was 22 years old after my first child. Um I, I got introduced to it um, by my mother, and um, we, we, had, we were doing drugs together for a long time, and she got clean and sober, and she's still clean and sober today, and I still ended up doing drugs and steady doing drugs, which my drug of choice was methamphetamines, and I smoked marijuana. I didn't drink, really. I was just mainly into those two drugs, and um, I tried, uh, well, I found out I was pregnant um, with my second child, and um, so me and my mom moved, well, my oldest daughter lived with her father because I was on drugs, and when I found out I was pregnant with my second child, my mother was just like, hey, this needs to stop, you know? So she moved me to New Mexico, and at that time I was on probation, regular probation for um, possession-controlled substance, less than a gram. And um, I didn't even try fixing myself then, but when she did move me, we moved to Roswell, New Mexico, and I was sober. And I stayed sober, and I had my daughter, and um, I I ended up... um, getting arrested there and I was arrested for the charge for the probation, the MTR motion to revoke on my probation because I, I didn't do nothing about it. Right. And I was, I was still sober and stuff. And then, um, when I got arrested and they extradited me from New Mexico to Texas and then from, um, there from San Angelo, Texas is where they took me. I got, um, sent to state jail and out here in Dallas to Dawson, Texas. Uh, Do- um, no, it's called Dawson um, State Jail. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, from there, I pretty much um, just did my time, which was 210 days. And I got out, and I was I went through being, being sober for about five years. And I ended up... Um, I was living in Eden, Texas, after I got out of there. And um, let's see. In Eden, Texas, I was sober, and I was managing um, a convenience store and just doing the right thing. And then I started drinking a little bit, and then my doctor put me on a um, 
a medicine saying that I was clinically obese. So, and at that time, I didn't know nothing about like, hey, I'm supposed to tell this doctor that I had an issue with, you know, addiction. And this doctor put me on this medicine and I ended up having to take a drug test and I came out um, positive for methamphetamines. And I'm like, well, I don't do that anymore. You know, that's not something that I do. So my job asked me for a doctor's note. So I went to my doctor and um, she gave me a note and told me, yeah, well, you will come up positive for amphetamines and methamphetamines. So that, in my head, my addiction, you know, automatically jumped on that and was like, oh, well, you know, you could get high because you can, you can do that and it will come out positive, but you have an excuse. So I took the note to, the, to my um, work and they were like, all right, you're all right. And so I was drinking and um, during that time I was drinking and I went out and I ended up relapsing on methamphetamines. Yep. And that's the addict head. It really, it's a, it's something we, you know, anybody who knows somebody who's ever had an addiction knows that it's, it's not that the people are bad or they're weak. It's just that they've got this problem and sometimes life throws something at them and it becomes an opportunity. That addict head seized on that information, didn't it, Lynette? It was like, oh my goodness, Definitely. what an opportunity! Yes, yes, I can, I can live and work and think that I can, I can function and use drugs and be able to get away with it because I have a prescription saying that I, I'm okay to use this drug. Yep. You know, and that's that's the psycho, <laughs> the craziness about the addiction. You know, it's just it's insanity and and it and it makes you think that it's okay you know and then i didn't know nothing about no being rehabilitated or you know going to naaa none of that stuff so i didn't know i was just like okay well i could do it you know and i and i seized the moment and i did it and and then i regret every moment of it and now i know Today, now that I'm rehabilitated and in living in recovery, I know today. Oh no, I go to the doctor. No, I can't take nothing. I, <laughs> nothing controlled. Nothing. No kind of controlled substance whatsoever. And let them know right off the bat. Hey, I'm a recovering addict. Um, I can't take any kind of drugs. Yep, and that's a, that's a clear recognition you now have that you didn't have before, thanks to this program and so much else. Definitely. When we come back, we're going to hear more from Lynette, and that is how she ends up in front of Judge Francis and what happens next. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of prison rehabilitation, prison reform, and we're telling a good story about this system because, my goodness, on TV, on radio, and everywhere else, all we hear about is what doesn't work. And my goodness, when it doesn't work, it's terrible. But when it does work, we need to share that with folks. And that's what we're doing here on Our American Stories. Judge Bobby Francis and his remarkable court treatment center. And Lynette Niaves, one of the folks in recovery who bumped into this man. And I believe ultimately became not only a father, perhaps a father figure she never had, but ultimately helped her get on her own get away from the bad influences in her life, and set up the rest of her life. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. More with Lynette Niaves and with Judge Bobby Francis after these messages. 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories for the hour. Judge Bobby Francis and the great work he's doing in the Texas program, 4C program. And he runs the Dallas Texas Reentry Court Program. And again, its acronym is 4C. And what we love to do is bring these stories to life. His story first, what led him to this place after all those years in the law. I'm a recovering lawyer myself, and I can't think of a better use of a law degree than what Judge Bobby Francis is doing with it. Uh, None, bar none, I can't think of a better use. And we're talking to Lynette Niaves, one of the folks that ended up in Judge Bobby Francis's court program. And Lynette, what led you, what was the final episode that led you to the to the prison system one last time. It reads like a like a really crazy nonfiction story you'd find on television, Lynette. Talk about that sub- drug supplier boyfriend and your habit and how they landed you in this last stage of your of your prison life. So okay, so I moved. Um, I ended up losing everything from when I was talking earlier. I lost everything: um, my job, my house everything and I ended up moving to Dallas and I was using drugs and I had my daughter living with me I was taking her to school and stuff like that and um, summertime came around and um, I talked to my brother my brother was like hey you know we'll help you out with you know your daughter Angelina will take care of her you know for the summer until you get on your feet you know so they took her in and well with her gone and, you know, taken care of, I was able to, of course, run into the wrong people and use more drugs. And um, I met my ex, who was very abusive, and he sold drugs, and um, I had an unlimited supply of drugs. And I've never had that much in my whole entire life, like ever, just at, at my use, you know, just to use. And, I mean, we would fight all the time. Um, He would beat me, and I'd leave, and I'd come back because, you know, that was somebody who was willing to take me back and um, give me money and give me drugs, and I had somewhere to stay. It was that security I needed as an addict, I guess. And um, But still, you know, the abuse was there. And one day, um, he'd beat me up pretty bad, and this is... Before before he beat me up, of course, he did all kinds of drugs with me and was like gave me like a bunch of drugs. And I ended up going into um, drug-induced psychosis to where I didn't um, I didn't I don't remember play by play exactly what happened, but I ended up um, leaving there, running from him after he beat me up, you know, in my night clothes down the street barefooted. Um, just trying to get away from him, and he was chasing me at the time, and I, I fled to a, a friend's house, and they ended up seeing me in my state and was just like, you got to go. You can't be here, you know? And so I left there, and from there, it was like a blur. I remember All I remember is knocking at someone's door right down the street from there, and then it just went into a blur. I ended up with um, the police had been called on me, and... Um, I ended up with a burglary of a habitation with intent to commit another felony against a person, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and possession controlled substance less than a gram. That's a nightmare. And then you're looking at a pros- you're looking at a prosecutor. You're looking at long sentences, and then yes. in comes this Judge Francis guy. 
Talk yeah, about well, talk about that. Wow, it was just like a, I mean, at that point when I seen all these big, you know, time sentences that they were trying to give me, I was like, oh my god, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I was already like done. I was like, I've never been this low in my life. I was done with drugs, and I was like you know, just asking my attorney, can you please help me, you know, because I've never had no kind of help, and I'm just looking for some kind of help. And I was looking at 20 Ag, and my DA went on maternity leave, and that's what I was supposed to go sign for was 20 years aggravated. And, yeah, so, I mean, imagine the thought of that. So, I mean, and then, so when I went in, uh, my attorney calls and tells me, hey, well, your your DA went on maternity leave and you've got a blessing. I don't know, you know, God is in your corner pretty much. Um, I talked him down to six months safe fee and five years deferred probation. And that right there just, like, really knocked the wind out of me because I've, like, never really had any kind of chance or no one really out there trying to help me. I've never had, you know, no one like that trying to help me. So, and so I went to safety and I was in there and I was doing good and, you know, doing everything that I was supposed to do. It's a very structured environment. And I mean, that place really helped me. It has a lot of cognitive, you know, help for people. And I've never knew nothing like that. And, you know, to be able to experience something like that, it, it's a lot of help when you're ready to stop and you get that kind of help. It's just like, wow. And they were going to send me to um, this Salvation Army, and it's it, it's like this place you go live at for a few months and try getting on your feet within three months. And I was just terrified because I heard of all kinds of people going there and relapsing and, you know, and using drugs and stuff. And then one day... Um, they're like, hey, you have an interview for 4C, and I'm like, what? I was like, well, I don't have nowhere to live in Dallas. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I can't just go, you know. They're like, well, calm down. It's going to be all right. You know, we have transitional houses, too, and I'm like, are you serious? So this blessings had just started coming nonstop. So when I got out, I was just so excited to be able to have this opportunity because I've heard so many good things about this 4C program. And so I get there, and I meet Judge Francis, and I'm like, you know, this this guy is the real deal. He's pretty he's pretty awesome, and he's straightforward, and he's like that tough father figure, like somebody that you don't want to let down, and you you know you're gonna keep it real with him and tell him what you you know he's gonna get that real out of you regardless, one way or another. As far as that conversation that he has, and he's like, you know, just a, a really good you know just influence on everybody i really felt like you know he was a really good father figure and somebody that i never had a man just telling me you know the right way to go and this is what you need to do and this is what we're doing here you know and just like straightforwardness about him and his personality was just really refreshing coming from what i came from you know it just made me feel like something to i need to work towards this and be a good person at this you know, one of the things we, we've heard, uh, this is the second time I think we'll hear it over and over again, is you know, he, was, he was the father figure you'd always needed and that he was strong, but yet, in, in a sense, you also knew that though he was strong and he was tough, he really cared. Um, and Definitely. That, that had to feel great, that the guy wasn't just tough because it was the rules. He wasn't just tough because he was in the law. Uh, he, was, he was tough because he loved you. He wanted to see you do better. Talk about Definitely. that. Definitely. 
Definitely. Well, I mean, like, I've, I've ran across a whole bunch of people, in, you know, as far as the justice system and stuff like that, and everyone's just real straight and narrow and this and that, and, you know, and and I'm just, like, real formal. And him, he's just, like, more of a, you know, this is what you need to do. This is all, you know, and that tough, that, that figure that I needed because, I mean, me, I, I was raised without a father. I didn't have a father my whole entire life you know, at all. I didn't have no one that cared that was a father figure that was just sitting there trying to help me in the right direction or cared about where I went or what time I got home or who I was around or none of that. And it feels like there it's like, okay, it's a real, it's a structured environment, but it's an environment that you're going to learn to live to. And as far as the structure, it's it's really good because I'm getting out. You really need that structure and those like you got to do this, you got to do that. It's a little overwhelming at times, but it's really just something that you know, like okay, well, I if I do all this, it just makes you feel better about yourself because being coming from that life to where you, you didn't have no structure, you didn't wake up at no certain time, you got up, got high, did whatever, yep. you know what I mean. And then it if it it's you have to change something and that's the part that's the first step of change that you need is a structure hold that thought Lynette Lynette Niaves we're talking to her we're talking to Judge Bobby Francis the two of them on the other side of this break something that works in our judicial system we're hearing it we're witnessing it more after these messages This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking, well, we're talking to Lynette Niaves and her story, how she ended up in and out of the prison system, and how she's finally faced down some demons, found some structure in her life, and found a way and a path forward, which we hope for everybody who lands in prison. I mean, there are some people... And we'll get into this, Judge, that, and we are joined also by Judge Bobby Francis, who need to be in prison for a very long time. They're dangerous. They're going to come out. They're going to do what they did again. I worked, and I, I'm a recovering lawyer, but I spent two summers, one summer in a sex crimes unit in Bergen County, New Jersey. And my goodness, there were people there. They even told you, they would tell you themselves, please don't let me out. I'm going to do this again. But we're talking here about a lot of the folks who end up in prison end up in prison for one reason, drugs, drug addiction, and it can be treated. And ultimately, we can get folks out of that system and into being productive members of society if we can get to the underlying causes. And joining us are Judge Bobby Francis, and he runs the Dallas-Texas Reentry Court Program, otherwise known as the 4C Program. And we're also talking to Lynette Niaves. And Lynette, when we left it off, we were talking about this program and the structure it gave you Let's talk about a couple of years down the road and talk, let's talk about your sobriety first and what's happening there and then also talk about the rest of your life and what's happened since the day you entered this 4C program. Talk about it. Okay, so um, now that I'm out and it's going on a year, I've been sober and I've given so I've I've been given so many great opportunities and now I have a really good job. Um I have an apartment. 
I have a vehicle. Um, I have my daughter back in my life. Um, of course, I have recovery. I go to my meetings three uh, three times a week, and that's part of the that's part of the um, structure that he gives us as far as that goes. It's like you have to go to three meetings a week, and so. I didn't understand it at first, but then going and, you know, hearing other people's story and, you know, maybe talking to some people and sometimes there's first timers and stuff that get to hear your story and it helps them in some way. So that's, that's another reason why I agreed to do this too, because I mean, maybe there's someone out there that need to hear this story to get them, you know, it's to get so, them through. It's true. It, it's true, Lynette. And, you know, one of the things you're, you're working two jobs right now, one is a waitress, and one is a manager for a catering company. And, you know, we were talking in the prep for this about mm-hmm. what you want to be known for. And nobody wants to be known for the worst part or day of their life or the worst years of their life. What do you want to be known for? And then we're going to go back to the judge. But what do you want to be known for, Lynette? Um, I'd like to be known. Actually, I, I don't mind to be known for anything that I went through because where I came from, it made me the person that I am today. Yep. And and it it adds a lot of character. So as far as that goes, I don't I don't mind for people to know that. That's why I don't mind talking about my story. But where I'm at today and the strong the strong person, strong independent person that I am today, that um, a good mother, a hard worker, and you know a survivor of of that kind of life is something that I'd like to be known for. And that's uh, that is a beautiful thing that you've overcome the hardships. You're not trying to brush over the hardships they're a part of your life but you want to be yeah. known as someone who is victorious over those hardships and Lynette it takes a lot of courage to to tell the story and it takes a lot of courage in the end to do what you've been doing and Judge Francis talk a, a bit about Lynette it's got to be an inspiration for you and it's got to keep you focused on the task at hand which is there are many more Lynettes out there first thing I want to talk about is that fatherhood issue what percentage of the folks that you encounter have this uh, deficit in their home and in their own life? I'm going to say at least 80 to 85 um, percent. I, I joke that the people that, that I deal with and foresee, none of them have parents. Some of them have biological contributors. I guess they all have biological contributors. But it is out of several thousand, probably 2,200 people I've done personal interviews with, maybe 10 of them grew up in a household where their parents were married, living together, working. I mean, that, that's, percentage-wise, that's zero. Most of them were raised by, by, by family members, by a single mother, sometimes a single father, uh, aunt, uncle, grandmother. The majority of them just didn't grow up with, with, with two parents dedicated to raising a quality human being, dedicated to their child's best welfare. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think that that lack of structure, I've, I've spent quite a number of, of years in and out of neighborhoods where there's very, very high fatherlessness rates, Judge. And what I experienced was amazing. I would talk to a kid, I'd be his friend, and one day I'd go to the house and he wouldn't be at that house because he was living in another house. And then sure. he was at his auntie's house and then he's at his grandma's house and then he's in a different school. And he's being moved around so often that it becomes clear to this kid that he's a priority in nobody's life. And that he has love, but he's not a priority, and he has no structure, and he's doomed for the streets because the only structure so many of these boys I worked with found was the local gang, the local enterprise. And by the way, Judge, it was the only place they found male love. 
as they saw it. Talk a little about that. I mean, I've got nothing against the village, but I'm so sick of hearing how a village needs to raise a child. Two parents need to raise a child. And that's based on 56, almost 57 years of, ex- of life and 30-plus years of experience in criminal justice. But when these folks come here, whether it's Miss Niaves as a female or, or, the, or the male participants, because I've got to assume a different role uh, with, you know, with each gender and certainly with each person, but if you show them from a father figure, if I was raising my own two children, um, I'm trying to do 18 years of parenting in one year, and I'm trying to make sure that they know from the beginning I want what's best for them. I want their life to turn out positive. I want it to be successful. I want them to be able to raise their own children. I want them to have jobs, careers. I want them to be able to be proud of what they do during the day, not looking over their shoulders, seeing if they're going to get arrested. And once you get them to understand that, they begin to listen to you, and they buy into the fact that, you know what? They really are capable of making a change. They really are capable of that. Because nobody's told them anything positive their yep. whole life. Yep. You've got to point out the positives. You know, one, one ounce of discipline and nine ounces of, of, of reinforcement and positive. Same way my parents raised me. Yeah, and it works. And, and Lynette, you, you know, you have Judge on the air right now, and you have an audience listening um, talk to him about what he's meant to you and, and let the folks know uh, about who aren't in, in states that have a program like this, what it's meant to you, Lynette. Well, I mean, it's meant the world to me. And I mean, I really do appreciate you judge. I mean, you've did a lot and you, you brought back that hope, you know, for me to feel that I, I do have a second chance and a lot of, you know, people out there think that, Oh, I've messed up too bad. There's no mess up too bad. There's no, you know, it, it, there's there's always a way to come back up from that hole that you've dug yourself. So and that's far- the truth. That is absolutely the truth. There's there's always a chance if people will show up and take advantage of it and ask for the help they need. Well, this has Definitely. been a this has been a beautiful a beautiful hour, and Judge Francis. Thanks so much for all that you do and are doing. And uh, Lynette, it takes a lot of courage to do what you did, to come on and tell the story. And we want to have you back on many more times, Judge Francis. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. And Lynette, thanks so much for joining us as well. Well, Thank you You for having me. You bet. Have a great day and and, and hook them horns. You bet. Hook them horns. (laughs) I hear you. And, And, you know, folks, this is why we like doing this storytelling. You know, you're hearing... You know, there's a movement out there called Black Lives Matter, and you can have your opinions, yay or nay. But I would love to sit down with that group. And by the way, I'd like to bring in some groups that are working in Appalachia with a lot of white kids who are coming up against the criminal justice system, and maybe they're getting in scrapes with cops. And yeah, there are some problems out there, but what I'd love to talk to them about is what the judge just talked about. All these kids without fathers. And if we could just for once in this country talk about the big problem that's affecting black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids, and when you're in neighborhoods where there are no dads, the cops are the least of your problems. They may be a problem, but the gangs are your problem, the crummy schools are your problem, drugs are your problem, and it all comes from what Judge says. 90%, the judge said, come from not having a father figure. You heard from Lynette herself that he was the father figure she never had. And so she jumped around from place to place and from drug to drug, trying to get it together, 
failing, trying to get together, failing. And she could have ended up in prison the rest of her life, but for that absence of a father figure. And so that's what we're doing here on Our American Stories. We're telling the stories of, well, the system when it works. Because my goodness, we know that it fails so many of the people in it. But this works, and we're hoping people listening in other states outside of Texas hear this and maybe go to a state legislator. Or maybe there's another lawyer who's been doing it for a long time. He's been prosecuted. He's been doing this. He's been doing that. And he says, man, that judge, I want to be him. I want to imitate him. And then we get more judges to do this and more lawyers to do this and more cops to think like this after they retire. Go to law school and then do this. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, where we love redemptive stories, solutions, not problems. And again, thank you, Judge Francis. And thank you, Lynette, for what you did and what you're doing. And God, pray. We pray for all of you. Pray for both of you and anyone who's in the same situation. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.